Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, I have Fabio Aguirre-Alves. He's an associate professor at Federal Fluminense uh, University in Brazil. We're going to be talking about uh, Staphylococcus aureus, um, MRSA, things like that, uh, you know, bacteria that become resistant to antibiotics and then, uh, you know, end up unfortunately, uh, you know, causing people all kinds of problems. So, Fabio, thanks for coming. Yeah, my pleasure, Richard. Thank you very much for inviting me for this um, podcast. Yeah, how did you uh, get involved in, in studying uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria? What, what put you on this path? Well, um, I, fin- I am a pharmacist, and I finished my um, undergrad, and I started uh, doing research at a Fiocruz, a very known research institute in Brazil. And uh, in the very beginning, I started working with parasites. And then for my PhD, they... Um, they invited me to do mostly what I was doing with parasites to discover the main epidemiology information for Staphylococcus aureus, which is a very bad bug. And, uh, and we, were, we were having like a few cases of uh, eye infection and bone infection at that specific time. It was back in uh, 2000, 2001. And then I kind of um, liked the idea of um, switching to bacteria instead of uh, parasites since I've been working. I was, at that time, I was working with parasites since my undergrad. So, okay, I'll try bacteria and see how it works. And then I start, started getting really um, amazed with the, with the genetic of the bacteria and the ability of getting resistance, being transferred from one bacteria to another. And then that's why I, um, I decided to switch to bacteria. And then I decided to actually learn about the, the bug and about the resistance profile and about the molecular methods used to understand the genetics of the bacteria. So I applied for a um, postdoc position at uh, UC Berkeley 2004. And then I started working with uh, Dr. Lee Riley from UC Berkeley. And, and then um, I started working with bacteria and mostly Staphylococcus aureus. But nowadays, I, I, I work with ma- the main bacteria that, that are uh, related to the hospital environment. So this is my, my path. Okay. Well, what, what are you trying to figure out about uh, bacteria in the hospital environment? Um, we, we do one specific um, type of uh, research that is called molecular, molecular epidemiology. So we find the bacteria and the patients, and then we look for specific genes related to virulence and resistance. So for the last five years, I've been trying to find some specific genes, and mostly virulence and resistance genes that are um, very important to identify the bacteria, but also to guide the doctors, the medical doctors, 
in uh, very specific treatments. So once you do the molecular epidemiology, you're able to kind of map everything you get inside of the, that specific hospital. And then you give some answers to the doctor to, to be more assertive in the treatment. So this is what I mostly do. Either I look for genes and resistance profile of the bacteria to, to have a surveillance very updated in the hospital environment. And also I look for those specific genes to, um, to develop uh, diagnostic methods, fast diagnostic methods based on molecular biology. What do you, what do you mean you look for those genes? When someone's sick, you'll what, sample them? You'll sample what, their, their body fluids and then yeah, do metagenomic sequencing to see if this MRSA is, is in them? Is that yeah. what you mean? So, yeah, so what we do, we, in general, we get some specific infection. It's a skin infection or blood infection. So we get the sample collected from this patient and we had we have the sample delivered to the clinical lab. And once we have the bacteria there, we, we get a sample of that bacteria, and then we do the genotyping. So we look for uh, virulence genes and resistance genes to, uh, to find um, how bad this specific bacteria is. So we get this bacteria from samples from the, from the, from the patients from the hospital. But we also get samples from the surveillance system that we usually have in the hospital. So we don't actually need to have an infection, but in general, this bacteria is found in the, no, in the nose of the patients, even though they're not sick. So you, you collect a swab from this patient's nose, and then we plate this swab in a media plate, and then we look for the specific bacteria. Then we do the genotyping. So this, there are two actually two different ways of looking for the, the genetic profile of the bacteria, either from the sample from an infection or the sample from a healthy um, patient or at least sick for, with another reason um, different from a bacterial infection. All right, so, uh, okay, you can sample them. You can see if they have bacteria in them. But what, what good is that, too? You find the bacteria, then what? Yeah, you once, interact them. yeah, once we find the bacteria, we grow the bacteria in a specific media, and then we, we um, do the DNA extraction. And so from the DNA, we look for resistance genes and virulence genes, and then we can say uh, that person is colonized or infected by that. X, Y, or Z bacteria regarding the virulence and the resistance profile. So once we map... But again, what, what does that do? So you find these genes, okay, they seem to be correlated with, you know, these problems. But then what? How do you figure out a way to, uh, to influence the bacteria and stop it? What, what can you do? Yeah, because if you, if you find this specific gene, let's say resistance to uh, beta-lactam, antimicrobial agents. So you cannot treat this bacteria with uh, penicillin. So you need to find another uh, antimicrobial agent to treat that specific um, infection. So once we get this information, we can tell the, the doctor, um, don't use uh, penicillin to treat this uh, patient because otherwise you, you want to you want, uh, solve the problem. So another big problem is in general, once you see the MRSA in the hospital, you go straight to vancomycin. 
which is a very bad antimicrobial agent because vancomycin can be bad for the lungs, can be bad for kidneys, can be bad for ears, bad for, for the liver. But it, this is the last option you have. The bacteria is not uh, dying. The treatment is not working. So you go to vancomycin, but it's, it doesn't need to be like that all the time. And you don't have to use your last weapon to kill the bacteria. So what, what you can do, you can pick from uh, the genes that we found. And so you tell the doctor, you have this, this, this option to treat this infection instead of going straight to vancomycin. So it's a way to um, save the patient from a very bad treatment with um, very dangerous antimicrobial agent. Sometimes you have a so problem. Even though uh, bacteria are considered resistant, um, if you understand their genes, you're saying you can still match up the right antibiotic with that bacteria and get rid of it, right? Yes. You can, um, you can save the patient from being treated by a very bad antimicrobial agent because sometimes the patient doesn't, does not die uh, from the infection, but and three, four months later, you can um, have a problem with that patient you can have a uh, kidney failure because the antimicrobial agent is very bad for, for the patient in that, in that sense. So, Well, okay, so this is good. This makes a lot more sense. I mean, from what I've heard historically, it just took too long to sequence someone's bacteria. So they would just give a broad-spectrum antibiotic, you know, especially if someone had an acute problem. So how quickly can your version of sequencing be done and then the right uh, you know, antimicrobial be applied. Yeah, what we do, actually, we don't do the um, DNA sequencing. We do the PCR reaction. We get the sample, the DNA sample, and we do a, we perform a PCR reaction, which takes like two hours. So if you get a real good amount of bacteria and that a specific infection, you can get the DNA from it. And it takes like 30, 40 minutes to do the DNA extraction. And then after that, two hours later, you can get a PCR reaction as a polymerase chain reaction. So we use a specific set of reagents to, to target the resistance gene specifically. So you don't do the whole genome sequencing of the bacteria, but you look for specific genes. So once you find those genes, it means that that bacteria is resistant to that specific um, antimicrobial agent. So what we want to do is to, to give a faster answer to the doctor instead of waiting for, uh, let's say, 24 hours for a average. The, the, the average type of um, uh, resistance profile testing, and sometimes it takes like 24 hours. So if you do a very specific testing for a group of uh, antibiotics, you can get the answer in two to three hours. Yeah, that's much better. Okay. Yeah. It's much well, it's good. What? Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I had the picture that you know, if you have a um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, you know, there's no hope for you. I mean, what what percentage of um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria are resistant to everything we've got? A lot of them, a little bit of them. Like what? Uh, you know, I don't know if your your okay. analysis is in practice a lot, but what's what's been seen now in hospitals? Yeah. So yeah, this is exactly what I do. Once we do the epidemiology, means that you know how much you get on that specific hospital, in that specific city, in that specific uh, state and country, right? 
So this is why we do the surveillance. So the, the responsibility of having a surveillance system is to have an updated information about this bacteria. So in general, you have 10% of the bacteria that you found in one specific uh, group, in one specific population. 10% of this population is colonized by MRSA. However, the, out of this 10%, the total of the bacteria, the total of the Staphylococcus aureus that actually colonizes the, the population is like 30%. So let's say we get 30% of the patients that are colonized by Staphylococcus aureus, not the resistant one. So out of this 100 people, only three to five are resistant to um, Meticillin, which gives the name Meticillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus that we call um, by uh, intimacy MARSA. So, 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 straight answer is three uh, percent of the population, between three and five percent of the population, is colonized by the resistant the resistant um, bacteria. However, it changes a little bit. Uh, regarding the type of bacteria we we're talking about. So we we're talking about MARSA. So the answer is in between 3 and 5% of the population that is going to be colonized by MARSA. But we're 3 and 5% that will be colonized by it? or, or yeah, we're not talking about, it. yeah, we're not talking about the disease. We're talking about the colonization. Colonization is 3 to 5%. Like everyone, everyone. You can have, like in your family, like, like, you know, one person that is in gen generally colonized by MARSA and not having any type of problem for the whole life. But when we talk, once we talk about an infection, it's a little bit different because if you get the infection, you can uh, a little bit higher um, prevalence. So once, once we're talking about the infections and once you go to the hospital, you can get around 30% of the cases of uh, nosocomial infection, like hospital infection. 30% of these infections in the hospital, there are by Staphylococcus aureus. But um, in between 10 to 15% of these samples, there are MARSA. Well, again, so, being colonized by it, does that, that doesn't necessarily mean you'll be sick. So how many yeah. people that are colonized by MRSA? I mean, okay, so what happens? Is someone colonized by MRSA, then they get sick? Or are there a lot of people that are colonized by MRSA they go along for a long time and nothing happens to them. Yeah, yeah. In general... But all of a sudden it turns against them somehow. Like what, what is the pathology you think of people that get affected by it? Yeah, so in general you don't, get, you don't get sick by being colonized by Staphylococcus aureus, but um, it's a risk factor for infection. So being colonized by Staphylococcus aureus is a risk factor for infection. Let's say you have to go through a whatever type of surgery so um it increases the risk of you getting infected by staphylococcus aureus if you are colonized by staphylococcus so in a few countries like canada and united states some people there they they're actually in some some hospitals they do surveillance active surveillance in the and once you get into the hospital to be uh, submitted to a, any type of uh, surgery. And then in this situation, if you're positive by Staphylococcus aureus, you can be decolonized by a uh, antimicrobial agent in your nose. So, be, and they will avoid 
the infection during the surgery. Okay, so one thing that would help is people that are already colonized by Staphylococcus aureus, because when you do surgery on them and you open them up, now that's when it seems like the uh, you know that that bacteria goes into them and makes them very sick, right? Yeah, because the the transmission is not really easy. But sometimes you get you you touch your nose, you touch you touch the place that you were um, sitting at or sleeping, or you can touch the 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 material around you while you're recovering from the surgery, so you can get infected. So it's good if you're uh, decolonized um, before the surgery, so it'll help you. Getting rid of the bacteria before. I thought, I thought pretty much everyone has Staph aureus, but some people have resistant Staph aureus and some not. Um, no, or do uh, no. only certain people have it at all? No, not most of the subjects. In general, it's 30% of the population that is colonized. You can have this in your skin. You can have this in your armpit or your nose, in the surrounding of your pelvic region, but not everyone. Because there is always a fight of uh, the, your uh, flora, right? Your micro, microbial uh, surface in your, in your skin. You call it microbiota. So if you, are, if you have this um, bacteria, they fight against each other to be the responsible for that kind of coverage in your body. But what we, what we actually know from many, many different publications and many different studies the the average is thirty percent of the population that is. But even the people that are colonized, how many of them? Are, I mean, what about the characterization of the colonization? Is the Staph aureus resistant? You know, is it methicillin resistant? Is it not? Is it resistant to other antibiotics? Is it not? Is that characterized? Yeah. So as I said, out of this thirty percent of the population that is colonized. In general, 3% of these isolates, they are resistant. But we call it, because this is the main type of resistance, it's called methicillin resistance, which is mostly regarding to beta-lactin type of antimicrobial agents as the penicillin. So 10% of the population, 10% of this okay. is Morissa. All right, so, so the best protocol, at least for now, it sounds like if anyone's going to have surgery, their bacteria should be profiled to see if they have Staph aureus and then to see if they have the, you know, the MRSA form and then given the appropriate antibiotic to decolonize them before the surgery just in case. Yes. This is exactly should. why in general people get some uh, prophylactic antimicrobial agents before any type of um, surgery because it's not only Staphylococcus aureus. We are, only talk we are talking about Staphylococcus aureus, right? But it's not only Staphylococcus aureus. You can see this type of uh, problem in any, any kind of bacteria. So this is why we use a um, broad-spectrum antibiotic before an uh, open surgery. But that could be a problem, though, in terms of recovery, because we have a uh, microbiome that's critical to our functioning. So by giving a broad spectrum, you're shifting that, and that may uh, stop recovery, may hamper the recovery. It could cause all kinds of problems. Yeah, yeah. I would think, you know. Yeah, this is something that is being um, brought up, like recently for the last few years. Once we started um, studying the whole genome sequencing of uh, different types of uh, surfaces, including the skin. And then we, we know that we have different types of bacteria colonizing different parts of the body. 
as the intestine, as the skin, as the mouth. So yeah, this is a price that we pay. I think we're uh, learning from it now. We're developing different uh, approaches to to deal with this type of infection. Like nowadays in Brazil, people, they don't use antimicrobial agents for minor surgeries um, in, uh, in the mouth as a dentist. So if you go to a surgery in a dentist, like a few years ago, they used to treat, to, to do prophylaxis with a patient with antimicrobial agents. But nowadays they don't do it. They don't do it anymore. What they do, actually, they just um, have a very um, nice preparation for the surgery and they protect the patient from um, uh, different types of um, possibilities of infection. But they don't treat the patients in advance with antibiotics. So this situation is changing because we now know that this bacteria, they're also good for your recovery. They, in general, you don't get really sick if you get this or that bacteria as a, your flora, as your surface mic- microbiota. So this... Yeah, now that they're not giving broad-spectrum antibiotics, you said for minor oral surgery in Brazil, what has been noticed? You know, have there been several thousand people that have now gone through this new method, and what's the difference? Oh, the difference that people, they don't actually get sick. They don't get, they don't get any type of infection. And you see, it's like not actually necessary to to do prophylaxis with this type of uh, patient once they go through any type of a minor surgery. So this is what be, they've been learning from uh, recent studies in uh, the use of... But that's, like, the, that's the lack of a negative outcome. But are there positive outcomes? Is the recovery from the surgery different? I mean, what else has been noticed besides like, you know, oh, they don't get sick, so we didn't really need it in the first place. But are there positive outcomes? Yeah, they're all they are all positive because the in, in this we don't have this type of problem with um, we don't have this type of problem. So once we uh, we don't have to treat the patients with the antimicrobial agents anymore, we see that we're kind of protecting the population of being exposed in to this antibiotics. So we. We lower the amount of antibiotics that is being spread in the population and everything. So this is the main, uh, the main good results that we get, the main good outcome for this type of uh, small surgery. What is this going to be done for other hospital stays? You know, let's say childbirth. Why not profile women that are going to have C-sections to see if they have MRSA or not, or if they're okay to have the C-section without a broad-spectrum antibiotic that would help them recover from childbirth better or other surgeries or conditions? Yeah, well, I'm, I am not actually familiar with this type of um, procedure, but I, I know that they're, they've been trying not to use antimicrobial agents in general. Oh, good. Well, eventually there will be, you know, studies that how does this change, you know, not giving broad-spectrum at least antimicrobials to people that are in the hospital you know, for all these reasons, they should be able to start collecting data on how that changes the outcome. Are they getting better outcomes for the patient because of that? Yes. One one beautiful thing that's been happening with this molecular epidemiology um, projects, different types of studies in molecular epidemiology, is that you can you can know, you can predict the type of bacteria that you're going to have an infection from that specific region. As we know, in real 
we have this main bacteria that is called Brazilian epidemic clone. So we used to have this bacteria for the last 25 years, let's say. Once we, we have first started doing um, molecular analysis on this bacteria, let's say for the last 20, 25 years, we, are, we were only having um, the Brazilian epidemic clone. There was a very, uh, very important bacteria that was mostly resistant to different types of uh, antimicrobial agents. But now with the globalization, the main types of bacteria, they're changing. But now in real, what we see is a type of bacteria, the same type of bacteria that is being found in the U.S. It's called a community-acquired MARSA. So this bacteria is not as resistant and regarding the anti antibiotic uh, profile. It's not as resistant as the Brazilian epidemic clone. So if we do the surveillance in that specific hospital and, and we see that 85, 9% of the population, 9% of the, the bacteria that we find in that specific hospital, if it's um, the community uh, acquired MARSA instead of the Brazilian epidemic clone, we can predict that we don't need to use this type of uh, antimicrobial agent as we used to, to as used to be the, the choice before. As I was saying in the very beginning of our conversation, vancomycin. Vancomycin is very bad, but you have to use vancomycin to use the Brazilian epidemic clone. But you don't need to use vancomycin to treat the community-acquired MARSA. You can use clindamycin, you can use another type of um, antibiotic, which is very good for the patient. So this surveillance um, studies, they are really good to help the population. So yeah, once no, that's great. Again, yeah. it's, it's, it avoids broad-spectrum treatment of or with broad-spectrum antibiotics, I yeah, guess so to put it in a funny way, right? Yeah, so this is the main idea of having uh, surveillance in, in a hospital or in any type of environment because then you know what is actually being spread in that specific environment. So you know how to treat the bacteria that show up. Even though you don't have time to wait for me to give you the results from the resistance profile, you'll be able to remember that last time I gave you a report regarding the, this surveillance, you, you will remember that he, you don't actually need to treat this patient with uh, vancomycin or clindamycin or gentamicin. You can go to a um, less um, dangerous antibiotic to the patient. What's, what's next with your particular research? Where are you taking it? Now, now as, as you were thinking in the very beginning, now I'm going to the whole genome sequencing direction. We use a very small um, equipment that we can do the the analysis like in a point of care style so we can bring the the small equipment it's the size of a old flash drive so we can bring bring it to the hospital and let's go let's say we go to the ICU and we we can screen all the patients in the ICU and in 3 4 hours i give um the type of uh, bacteria that this patient has and the type of uh, resistance profile that you can, you can uh, have for this patient. So you know that in case this patient gets sick or gets any type of infection, you know that uh, you, we can use 
this and that antimicrobial agent. So my direction now is mostly point of care um, diagnostic method, mostly molecular biology, genomic analysis. Well, what's next for point of care? Faster, cheaper, uh, more conclusive? Like, you know, everyone wants to improve all the time or is it is it good enough? It's just not used nearly enough, not nearly as often. Yeah. Um, in the very beginning, of, um, the, the first next was PCR. So instead of uh, growing the bacteria for 20 hours, 20, 24 hours, we had the PCR that we could do the response in uh, four hours. And then we had the real-time PCR that we can have a response in two hours. And then uh, we want to move to the, to the point of care. Instead of getting the sample from uh, the patient and bringing to the clinical lab and doing all the tests and then bringing to my molecular biology lab and doing all the tests, so we want to do the whole genome sequence as point of care. But I think next it's going to be a machine, a machine that you can just get a swab from the patient and stick the swab inside of the machine, and in like 45 minutes the machine will give you the the resistance profile the resistance profile the type of bacteria the species and uh, the virulence factor that you can find in this um, in this bacteria colonizing or infecting and then uh, okay. hopefully use less antimicrobial agents in uh, in the hospital environment so i think this is next next but it's really um, and less fight well since we have a, a normal microbiome and microbes appear to trade resources um, has anyone looked to see when someone has MRSA or Staph aureus, what other microbes come along with that? Are yeah. there ones that tend to be present, you know, when Staph aureus is there and, and what are they? If so, has anyone looked at that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, a lot, a lot. So, okay. um, yeah, the microbiome is very interesting. So as I mentioned, like for the last few years, like let's say three, four years, especially in this lab, I, I, I went for my postdoc at UC Berkeley with uh, Dr. Lee Riley. He's a star in uh, microbiome. So they've been doing, they've been checking on the surfaces of the patients and subjects in general, normal subjects in the street, let's say, like healthy patients. And then they um, swab these people and they bring it it's straight to the machine. There's a very powerful machine to do the microbiome. So you can see all different types of bacteria that you, you can find in this subject. Because some of this bacteria, some of this microorganisms, like, let's be like, uh, let's spread the information. Some of the microorganisms, they don't actually grow in a media, in a plate or in a broth. So you, you are never able to see it if you don't if you if you don't do the analysis it's straight from the skin or from the nose or from the gut of this patient so they've been finding many many different types of uh, bacteria new species they're being um, discovering many different types of species because um, some of them you cannot actually grow at least in the type of media that we um, we're used to to use in the lab. So. Well, the reason I ask you is, let's say MRSA always appears to be coincident with, I don't know, two other bacteria. Maybe those other bacteria trade resources with MRSA and enable it to be more effective. So what if you could do an antibiotic that preferentially kills off the MRSA partners if they exist, and that weakens MRSA without having to attack it directly or 
increase its resistance. You know, there, there may be a lot of interplay here of roles where you can attack these things from different angles instead of just head on. Yes, there are two, there are two different things to talk about this. The first one is that there is an event that is called lateral gene transfer. Bacteria, they have a DNA that is circular, and this bacteria, they change. They exchange the material, the genetic material with each other. So let's say we have enterococcus, which is very dangerous, but not really aggressive. And it's very um, easy to, um, to treat with different types of antimicrobial agents. But this enterococcus in general is a carrier of a vancomycin resistance. So in general, what we see, the enterococcus is able to transfer the vancomycin resistance gene to Staphylococcus aureus because they coexist in the same um, patient, in the same environment. So if Staphylococcus aureus, which is already MARSA, um, gains the resistance gene from the Enterococcus, so it's a very bad and aggressive and virulent um, bacteria carrying the vancomycin resistance. And guess what? Vancomycin is the antimicrobial agent that is uh, the choice to treat uh, MRSA infection. So in this situation, we are in trouble. So this is the first uh, part of the answer. And the other part of the answer is that as they coexist in the same environment, in general, in general, there are balance. So one, one bacteria, uh, um, let's say, prevents the other bacteria to, to grow and vice versa. So this is a balance in between the amount of bacteria and the resistance profile and the virulence. And that's why we're walking around uh, freely with a lot of bacteria in our skin. Did I answer your question? Well, actually, it brings up another question. When, when you have yeah. Staph aureus and it becomes MRSA, let's say, where does it get that... Um, that ability to do that. I mean, you know, the theory I always hear is, oh, it, you know, it randomly mutates or some you know, BS like that. It, do you think it's getting the genes from partners that are living around it once it's when, when it's under attack by a given uh, antibiotic? Like, where does it get the resistance from so quickly? Or does it just have to have it the whole time? But I mean, in general, like, where? How do you think these um, these resistance strains evolved? Where did they get their material from? Yeah, it's, as I said, it's um, it's a event called lateral gene transfer. So this X bacteria is a carrier carrier of the A type of resistance gene, and it gets together in the same environment. Y bacteria resist gene. So once they get together, so they transfer to each other. This bacteria now to antibiotics that it was not used to resist. It. So the main the main reason for this to happen is this uh, lateral gene trend happens bacteria to another. But also selection before once you very respect antibiotic select the bacteria that are resistant to that specific biotic. So now that you have the, the surface is completely free of the other bacteria. So now the only bacteria that grows is the one that, that survived the treatment, the treatment from uh, that antibiotic. So there are two reasons for their resistance to show up. First one is lateral gene transfer. And the second one is the resistance of the specific bacteria that is resistant. So it stays under the treatment of any specific anti antibiotic. 
and then it grows freely after the destruction of the bacteria in the surrounding area and the environment. And it also comes from the general environment, not talking about uh, hospitals. But once you're just like laying on the grass or going to the beach, it, some types of bacteria and other microorganisms as fungi, they, they transfer their material. So you can get this information from another, another microorganism too. So what are, are there then reservoirs, bacterial reservoirs or resistance genes that are, are out there? And the bacteria that we're trying to affect with our antibiotics are they using these reservoirs, you know, through this lateral gene transfer to pick up resistance as needed? You, are you asking if there are reservoirs? Can you consider other bacteria that have these resistance genes reservoirs of that ability or of the, those genes? And they're there, let's say, and, and the bacteria in question, Staph aureus, is looking to them as a reservoir through lateral gene transfer to get the genes it needs to survive when it's under attack. Is that a model that, that makes any sense? That there are certain bacteria that just had these resistance genes and that's really where they, where they come from originally. Yeah, um, the, in general, the, the resistance gene is transferred mostly from one, one bacteria to another. And as we've been studying right now, this uh, One Health, um, system, which is um, the communication of the environment and humans and animals and the relationship of this tree. So we've been having like resistance genes from bacteria that are usually colonized um, dogs, like pets. I have, a, I have a friend in my department, he works mostly with uh, pets. So there is one specific Staphylococcus aureus from dogs that you can have an infection in humans by this specific bacteria, but nobody actually um, discover or types this type of bacteria because they're very similar to Staphylococcus aureus. So you can get this um, resistance, resistance genes from this specific uh, bacteria that you have in your dog. So once you this bacteria get connected to the bacteria that is in your nose. Now you have a Staphylococcus aureus that used to be um, not MARSA, but now it's a carrier of a different type of um, resistance. So, but do they pick up these resistant genes just by being in the same neighborhood, or do they only do it under stress and pressure to survive? No, no, I don't believe. No, they just like they just there. They're normal, but once you you put this bacteria under a different type of pressure as um, treatment in with this specific antimicrobial agent, you do a selection. You can have a selection of this bacteria for sure, but it's not a result of uh, any type of environment pressure for them to try to spread. It's just a random event of a bacteria getting together being able to live in the same environment and then spreading the resistance genes to one another. Why would they take up resistance genes unless they needed them because of, uh, you know, threat of death from some kind of, uh, you know, some outside agent? No, they, they don't do that because they need. They just do that because they can. So they're already there. Uh, 
you treated this population with this specific antibiotic. So this population now, it's surviving. So of course, they're proliferating in that specific environment. So you have more of that, of, of that specific bacteria that is a uh, carrier of that antimicrobial resistance. So now you have more of this. So in the very beginning of the story, you have a 0.001% of the population that was resistant to antimicrobial agent X. But then once you started treating that subject with that antibiotics, this the number, the percentage of the bacterial population in that specific environment, instead of being 0.0001, now it's 0.1. So the probability of this bacteria finding the MRSA or the Staphylococcus aureus that is not resistant increases just because of the events are more prone to happen at this, this specific moment because it's easier to happen because they're increasing in number because they're surviving the treatment with um, antibiotics. So that's why we only have resistance bacteria in the hospital environment, because you treat them with chlorhexidine to clean up the equipment, to clean up the floor, to clean up the walls, you use chlorhexidine. Chlorhexidine kills most of the bacteria. However, let's say you got 0.001% 0.001% of these bacteria that are resistant to chlorhexidine. Now you're increasing the population of the resistant, resistant bacteria in that specific environment. So once this bacteria finds the second one, it will exchange its uh, genetic material with the other bacteria. Now we have two different species with the same resistance profile. You know what I mean? Well, very good, Fabio. We're just about out of time. What's what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? I have my profile in uh, Google Scholar, and uh, we ha- I have all my all my articles, all my published um, papers in uh, Google Scholar, Google Academics. There are two names. For it. But if you want to see my uh, profile in uh, NCBI, which is the main web page for uh, research publication, you go under. Aguiar slash Alves, and um, and you look for Staphylococcus aureus uh, publications and see. But you can also, can also see my name and my research and my the people in my lab and uh, Fluminense Federal University webpage. Okay, very good. Well, Fabio, thank you for coming. And it's a interesting subject, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to be faced with uh, drug resistant bacteria. Because it's uh, you know, it appears to be getting worse, so it's important yeah. the work you're doing, and I appreciate you coming. Yes, yes, thank you very much, Richard, and feel free to send me uh, like a message if you if you have any other question. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.